Jesus had said in John chapter 8, these words, If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, holding on is hard to do. You ever uh, try to hold on to your diet? It's, uh, it's uh, well, you know, the tough part is not watching what you eat. The tough part is watching what other people are eating. That's the hard part about a diet. You ever try to hold on to an exercise goal or routine? That's hard, that's hard to hold on to. Uh, I have a friend who posted some things last week on social media. His new exercise routine involves a thousand crunches a day. I'm thinking the only crunches I do daily are Nestle's Crunch and Captain Crunch. That's about it. He's got a thousand a day. There's no way I'm going to be able to hold on to that. And he says, I think sometimes it is, it's easier to let go than it is to hold on. Recently, I heard the talk of a comedian. Her name is uh, Julia Sweeney. She was on Saturday Night Live some years ago back in the 90s. Um, not widely popular, but uh, some of you might recognize the name. She gave a very serious talk recently about how she walked away from her faith. And in it, she described what took place. That Early on, she was a part of the church, and then as she got famous... She just felt like she didn't need God anymore and she just did it her own ways and she, she fell away from the church and she abandoned her faith. And then she had this really serious relationship in her late 30s and she thought, this is the one, this guy I'm gonna marry. And that guy broke up with her. She said her heart was a wreck because of the emotions that were flooding over her and she would pray nightly, God intervene, God take over, I need you. And And she said in a moment, in her tailspin of that relationship, she said she felt God enter her room and like like he was literally there nearly. And she had this sense of peace and calm and, and that for her, her relationship, well, she was healed is how she said it. She was healed. So she decided since God had done this for me, I need to get back in church. I need to thank him for who he is and and just throw my life completely in devotion to him. So she did, like the next Sunday she starts back up at the church that she grew up in, she falls into a Bible study group, she starts giving regularly of her finances, she's doing every single thing that she can possibly do to like reactivate her faith. And three months later, she says, she looked back and she was like, I don't feel close to God, I don't feel like the things I have done have brought me any closer to God than when I was when I gave up on faith. And so she decided that God is not real. And she's abandoned the faith. And now she goes around the nation and she gives a speech that's titled Letting Go of God because it's easier to let go than it is to hold on. You know, I know that I, the way I told that story wasn't probably very captivating. Her story was really, really captivating. It was thought-provoking. And the thought I had was all of you. And I thought, you know, we're going through this book together. We decided last Sunday to start this book that has some scripture in it to, to pray through this book. And, and there's some things here that gives us some things to ponder in prayer. We take five to ten minutes out of our day and, and start a greater foundation in our faith. And I wondered, I wondered, and maybe ponder while listening to her, how many of you here today are like, I've never done that. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna give it a try. 40 days, God, I'm gonna give you a chance on this one. And you're gonna walk away at the end of 40 days and you're gonna say, I don't feel any closer. 
You're going to say, that was, a, that was a load of junk that that preacher tried to tell me. I'd get closer to my God through this kind of thing. Let me, let me just be blatantly frank with you for a minute. If you use this guide or if you use these scriptures or if you use your prayer as nothing more than a religious ritual, you probably will get nothing out of it. These things have to be activated. Activation means we got to live these things out. We got to obey what's being taught to us. We got to we got to engage our muscle. We got to engage our mind. We've got to engage our passion. We have to engage these things in order for these to become real so that we can hold on to them because if they just stay as rituals, they'll become religious. And religion is, well, it's boring. And we'll let go. But once it becomes real and nearly, nearly undefinable, then that will be something that will say, I've got to hold on to this book. I, I want this book. I need what's in this book. I want for all of us in this room, for this whole congregation, to, to have God's word to become the foundation for our life. That's what I want as a pastor for all of us. That it becomes the bedrock foundation of all that we do and all that we build our life upon. Let, let me give you some primary ways we can hold on to God's word and make it the foundation of our life. First, to hold on to God's word, I've got to make it the foundation of my life. I've got to settle on that this becomes the be all end all for me. That's what I've got to do. Matthew chapter 7 is what was described in our sermon introduction in the video. It's called the parable of the wise and foolish builder. In it, Jesus teaches us that we are all going to build our lives on some kind of foundation. We all have a foundation that we build our lives on. And so he's instructing us, why not choose wisely? Why not make a decision today to, to build on a good and solid bedrock foundation? Something that will give you strength and support and won't crumble when the storms of life come. This past week, you know, we broke ground on our North Edition, uh, about 8,000 square feet or so of children's ministry space right over here. We're super excited about it. It's better late than never, I think, in our estimation. It was supposed to happen last March, but now it's finally here. Good. I'm glad it's here. And I talked to one of the engineers that was over there while he was overseeing the very beginnings of that dig, and he had given me some insight that helped me understand the value of a foundation in our life. He said, you know, you, you don't ever see the foundation of a building. But then he added, the quality of the structure, the quality of the building is dependent on the strength of the foundation. The quality of the building is dependent on the strength of the foundation. And then it just like hit me spiritually some things. Like the quality of my parenting is going to be determined by the strength of my foundation. So that means if the foundation I'm building my parenting on, my parenting skills on is like shaky, um, I bet you my parenting is going to be pretty shaky as well. How about when it relates to our marriages or our relationships? If the quality of the foundation isn't strong, the building is the building that we build upon is, is the, the the building is just going to be shaky and going to fall apart like Maybe that's why some of us in this room, our relationships just can't seem to be strengthened or strong or ever be held together right because the foundation is not built on the bedrock foundation of God's word. Or how about our financial house? Some of us spend so uh, crazily, like we're just spontaneous with our spending. There's no defined purpose behind it. And then we'll wonder why we're dead broke at the end of the month. 
Maybe it's because we're not getting our financial principles from the foundation of God's word. We're, we're getting our, fi- our, our foundation principles from somewhere else and it's leaving us uh, unstable financial mess because the strength of our foundation determines the quality of the building. We've got to get our foundation right if we want our building, our life to stand strong. When Jesus taught this parable in Matthew chapter 7, the wise and foolish builder, here's how he ended it. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man. Now, don't you want to be the wise guy? I do want to be the wise man who built his house on the rock. He says, when the rains came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, it did not fall because it had the foundation on, its, on the rock. And Jesus is saying, the best foundation that you can possibly have for your life, for your parenting, for your relationships, for your finances, is found in God's word. Any side, anything outside of that is, is shifting sand. It's shaky. It's not going to hold up. And he says there's some storms that are coming. Like we need a foundation that's going to be able to withstand the storm. Friends, storms are coming. You're aware of this, right? You can't stop death. You can't stop pain. You're not going to be able to stop the heartache that relationships, broken relationships bring to our life. So what's going to be your foundation when the storms roll in and they beat against your house, they beat against your life? You see, as a pastor, I want you to have the strongest foundation you can possibly have so that your life does not collapse when the storms come. Because they're guaranteed. They're going to come. So why not be wise and make the decision today to build your house upon the foundation of God's word? Because there are so many bad foundations out there that we could choose from. Let me just mention a few of the bad foundations for a moment. There's popular thought. Popular thought. Like, I'm just going to go with whatever's popular. That's what I'm going to go with. The Apostle Paul, he warned a church and he said, don't go with popular thinking. Here's how he said it. Don't let anyone capture you into empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking. You see, when we allow popular thought to be the basis of our life, we get something that sounds good, but it's not. It's not godly. It sounds good, it's just not godly. Like, for instance... Have you ever heard people use the popular thought of, I've got to start getting my life in order first before I start helping others get their life in order? You ever, have you said that one before? Well, that's popular thought. That's not Bible. As a matter of fact, Jesus had a term for that. He called it selfishness. That even in our weakness, we can still do some strong things because God's in our life. And Jesus' whole example and his livelihood fought that very thinking back that I've got to get myself in order before I can help other people out. I, I want to know at what point, what point do you honestly get yourself together? I don't feel like I've ever done that. Have you? So I think that would mean I just don't ever get to help people. How about this one? Uh, if I look beautiful, I'll feel beautiful. Like that might be a little bit of truth. Like maybe you've been a part of a wedding and you've looked the best. You've dressed to the nines and you've just stared at yourself in the mirror and you're like, this is as good as it gets. But maybe that was kind of a letdown for some of you. You're like, this is as good as it gets. Uh, and then you're thinking, you know what? I can't, I can't base, I can't base my foundation. This can't be my foundation of my identity based on my look. That's always changed. My looks are always changed. That can't be my foundation. As a matter of fact, the scripture puts it like this and says, have a better identity 
Don't depend on things like fancy hairdos or gold and jewelry or expensive clothes to make you look beautiful. But what? What does it say? Let's say it together. Be beautiful in your heart. Let your identity come from Christ. I can't wait till January when we start a series on our identity being found in Jesus and and how that sets us free when we realize beauty is found in Christ. Personality that people want to be around is found in Jesus. Our identity is found in Christ, not in the things that we wear or the things that adorn our bodies. How about tradition? That's a pretty, it's a pretty good thing. It keeps us rooted. There's some really good traditions, but it's a bad thing when tradition overrides truth. Let me give you some ideas on that. Like uh, as a kid, I was taught that the building that the church met in was the, ch- was, was the church and that God lived in that building. We called it God's house. And then I found out the truth of Scripture, that the people meeting in the building were the church, not the building itself, and that the church, the people, were really the temple of God, and God dwelled within us. Now, that's the truth. I don't want to get hung up on tradition. Here's a great tradition that makes a lot of sense to me and has a lot of meaning, and it's a good thing, like confirmation. If you've ever been through confirmation and maybe an, another uh, faith tradition, you know that that's a good thing but here's where it becomes a problem when that tradition overrides the truth and now you're looking at that confirmation as a thing that saves you and you think back to it and you go you see i was confirmed and i'm good when it's christ that saves because the scripture tells us the truth jesus saves us by grace we are saved and i like what the book of romans says for his spirit joins us with our spirit to affirm that we are god's children so it's not man that we need to confirm us God's Spirit confirms us. Maybe some of you were baptized in another denomination and you weren't baptized into Christ. You were baptized into that church. You were baptized into that denomination. Well, that's traditions of man, not the truth of God. Because the Bible tells us in Romans 6, we're baptized into Christ. You're not baptized into Bethany. You're not baptized into the denomination. You're baptized into Christ Jesus because it's only Jesus that can save us. Not a denomination, not a preacher, Jesus taught it like this. He looked at a group of people that had invested in man-made traditions, and he said, you have let go of the commands of God. That was the very thing he warned against, didn't he? He said, you need to hold on to the truth. But these guys had let go of the commands of God, and they're holding on to human traditions. What human traditions are keeping you away from the truth of God and keeping you away from having a more solid foundation that's found in Scripture? How about human reason? You ever use this one? Like this is the things that just speak to us. And if it goes against our opinions, if it goes against our ideology, we just say, nope, can't be right. Like there are some, maybe even in this room that say, you know what? God is old fashioned and the Bible is archaic. And since God is old fashioned, he doesn't understand how our modern lifestyles have changed. And I think that's why you even have denominations and you have even folks in this congregation that said, you know what, homosexuality is okay. Sex before marriage is not that big of a deal. Living together, you're just kind of testing the waters out. It doesn't matter what God says. God, you see, God's too far behind the times on this kind of stuff. What he had said was written thousands of years ago, and he hasn't caught up to our modern lifestyle, and we start to make human reason here. Let me tell you something about human reason. We use it so that the scriptures fit our lifestyle, and we manipulate it, when actually we should be changing our lifestyle to fit God's word. 
and humbling ourselves and saying, God, you know what's best. So anytime you feel convicted that something is right, even when God says it's wrong, you need to go back to the foundation of Scripture and realize God says it's a no-go. He knows what's best for our life. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to man, but at the end it leads to death. That's human reason. How about feelings? Feelings are a good thing. They help us to express our emotions, understand the things around us, but they can also fool us, can't they? You ever been fooled by your feelings? Well, the Bible even says when God told the prophet Jeremiah, hey, look, Jeremiah, don't get involved with your feelings because the heart is deceptive above all things and beyond cure. Like, you're not going to, we can't cure our feelings. We're always going to have them. God says, look, I, you can't go through life without feelings. You, you're going to have feelings. Just know how to interpret your feelings. Let God be your guide. Don't let your feelings be your guide because God even says, who can understand them? Who can understand feelings? They're going to lead, they're going to take us down a path where our life becomes uh, so spontaneous that we will do things that we regret. And we'll look back and say, why did I ever do that? And you can think, because I built the foundation of my life on feelings rather than the structure of truth of God's word. So what do I do then? If I want to make the Bible the bedrock of my life, the foundation, but yet I don't understand it. You, you fall into that category, I... I want to get into the Bible. I don't understand the Bible. What do you do then? Let me tell you, the main message of the Bible is so easy that a child can understand it, but there are some verses of Scripture that are so deep that no theologian can explain them away. Like, if you you can enlighten me on what God means by the two becoming one flesh when man and woman are married, I'll give you my salary. Because I don't know. I don't have a clue what that means. I, I just, I'll obey it. It's important to God. It can't be separated. The two, that's why he hates divorce. The two are one flesh. In his mind, he's like, I, I can't divide the one anymore. I can't do that. The two are one. Here's why I know this, is that if I had to create a version of God, he'd be small like me. He'd fit my limited intellect, but he doesn't fit my limited intellect. He's bigger than I am. He's not my size. Isaiah tried to fit God into his little box of understanding. And God said, look, Isaiah, look, I'm, I'm too big for you. You're not going to fathom me. I'm indescribable. And so he said, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. And my ways are far beyond anything that you could even imagine, Isaiah. And I think what God is saying is, hey, look, there's going to be some times you're just not going to understand everything that's found in the Bible, but here's what I'm saying to you. Don't let the things that you can't comprehend in God's word keep you from the things that you can comprehend in his word. Mark Twain kind of said it sarcastically when he said, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand that bother me. He's saying there's some things in the Bible that I just don't like about it because it convicts me. So what do you do when the Bible convicts you? What do you do when there's parts about the Bible that you understand, but you just say, I don't like it? What do you do then? I'll tell you what you do. You either allow God to do the needed surgery in your life, or you keep living the way you're living with the pain and the hurt and the anxiety. See, there's some things in Scripture that we are going to run away from. When I was younger, there was a 
two passages of scripture I didn't want anything to do with. I knew where they were at, stayed away from them. If I had to have daily reading and I knew where they were there, I'd just skip over because one would convict me not to do something. And then there was another one in the Old Testament that was convicting me to do something better as a minister. And I was just like, stay away. Too much pressure on me. And that would bring me pain if I had to read them. But here's what I found out. Stretching of the faith takes, there's gonna be a little pain involved. But I found out that the pain leads to something greater it leads to peace i'd rather have peace in my life experience a little bit of pain with a whole lot of peace just like the incision of a surgeon's scalpel there's going to be some pain there's going to be some hurt but you know that surgery is going to bring a lot more healing to your life i'd rather have that and here's the second primary way we can hold on to god's word and that is i'm going to do everything i can to make it the first part of my day i'm not the best at this uh, but i feel like i'm doing better at this and this is what I want for all of us because here's what happens our day starts and we have all these priorities lined up we want to do a thousand things and we get out of the bed and we we are running when we get out of bed why not just take a, a moment or two and to get God involved in this as a matter of fact Jesus puts it like this he says but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and I like this and then all these things will be given given unto you as well like you seek me first, and then, then you can have the rest of your priorities, but make me a priority first. Make the quest for God, the pursuit for God, be your number one importance in the morning. Don't push this thing off, because when you do, when you push this off, it doesn't really ever happen later in the day. You know, we handed out these books to you for free because we thought they were important enough to help give you a starting point in your faith to read some scripture and to pray. If you don't have one of these books, then... There's some in the welcome desk that you can take home with you. Start today, get into it, and you're saying, yeah, but the how-to page says that I'm supposed to start September the 26th. Look, some stupid preacher came up with that, and I don't know who it was, but you're supposed to start today. Don't do what it says. Do what I'm telling you to do. Start today and get involved into some reading of Scripture. Get involved into to praying and allow that to be the beginning of your day. Carve out five minutes. Carve out ten minutes of your day and say, God, your kingdom come. I'm seeking after your kingdom today. And then, then, then all these other things that I want for my life. Yeah, you know, I think perhaps maybe the reason why some of us don't uh, read more and why we wander away from some of the devotional things of Christianity is because, uh, well, like I had somebody tell me this last week, uh, Matt, I tried to have this scripture reading goal of five chapters, and I found out by the time I was in the first chapter, I was thinking about my grocery list, I was thinking about what time I had to pick my kids up from school, I was thinking about all these different things, but I wasn't thinking about what I was reading. As a matter of fact, I can't even remember what I was reading. You ever had those moments? You're reading, your, I, don't, I don't even, I can't even remember what I'm saying. What happens is, we, we've kind of ruined our reading. Not, not them for the day, we've ruined the thought about connecting with God like we think now that it is unproductive because we're not getting anything out of it. And not only is it unproductive, let me tell you, it's counterproductive to do that. Let, let this be our goal as a church. Let this be our goal, that we read to the point of distraction. Who says you have to read a chapter a day? Who says you have to Spend 20 minutes in God's word. You read to the point of distraction. You take the quality rather than the quantity. And when you read to the point of distraction, you say, okay, my mind's wandering. I gotta put this down. 
I'm going to meditate what I just read because I can remember that because I, I haven't been distracted. And maybe your point of distraction is like one minute. I mean, you're one of those. So you're one minute. But maybe your point of distraction some days is 20 minutes. Maybe your point of distraction is one verse. And maybe on certain days, your point of distraction takes you all the way through 10 chapters and you can't just, you can't put it down. You just, you thirst for it. Why set all these goals that when you don't hit them, discourages you? Why not just say, my goal today is to let God speak to me in a great way or a small way, but I am going to give God the opportunity to speak to me and I'm going to open up this Bible and I'm going to read up to the point where the human flesh says, check out. Didn't that make a wise decision for some of us? You know, the fundamental way that you can make God's word grow deeper is uh, letting it just develop in your life. And I think one of the things that we need to do, a primary foundation of our life needs to be that we need to make it grow deeper in our life. We need to find ways in which we can make this thing grow deeper in our lives. And you've got to want this. I can facilitate it all day, but I can't force it. You've got to want it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is the idea that God's word is inhabiting you so that it can influence, and influence you. I think a lot of us let God's word inhabit us. It's mental only, but when it comes to the heart, it doesn't, take, it, you know, it doesn't move the 18 inches from here to here. And we need to get it from here to here so that it works out here and so that we can let God's word dwell in us and influence us. Jesus said, this is foundational. Remember what he said in John 8, how we started the sermon. If you hold on to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free if you hold on. That word hold is continual. Like, don't let go. Stick to the grip that you have on God's word. Don't let go of God's word. Because one day, it, the trust of a relationship is going to be broken in your world. It will be broken in your world. And you're going to have to trust God that his word is right, that you can find forgiveness. That God can lead you to a place of forgiveness. One day in your world, you're going to get your priorities all out of whack. All out of whack. And you're going to say things like Sunday morning worship aren't really that important. And the truth of God's word comes back as a foundation for us and says, don't give up meeting together as some of you are in the habit of doing. Make weekly worship with those like believers a priority. At some point in your world, you're going to get so overwhelmed by work. You're going to get so overwhelmed by projects. You're going to get so overwhelmed by the things you've you got to finish up in school. And you're going, to, you're going to just be anxious over these things and worried by these things. But it's the Word of God that comes back and sets us a foundation to help us grow deeper. Don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. And everyone here says, Amen to that. But today, Christ says, I've overcome the problems of today. You need to trust God for that. I was recently watching ESPN and I saw this show where NBA player Clay Thompson of the Golden State Warriors was running an experiment. The experiment was, can he shoot the same percentage of three-pointers in the dark that he can in the light? I, like Amazingly enough, he can. He shoots 80% in the light and he shoots 80% in the dark. I can't shoot 80% of my layups in the light. And this guy's like so automatic that it doesn't matter. And what they figured out in this experiment, they had these uh, sports science guys in there and they said, he has spent thousands of hours on the court 
shooting three-pointers to the point now that it's all muscle memory. He can close his eyes, step up to the line, and shoot the ball, and more than likely, 80% of the time, the ball is going to go into the basket because it's become a natural response for him as a player. Now think about this in getting into God's Word. Reading is just one part of success. The major part is practicing God's Word, making it happen, giving it flesh, working it out, so that when relationships do get broken, so that when priorities get out of whack, so that when we're overcome with worry, our natural reaction becomes a spiritual, scriptural reaction rather than a humanistic reaction. So that our spiritual muscle is so conditioned because we've been practicing the word of God that we can almost automatically do what Christ had taught us to do. We've trained our hearts, we've trained our minds, and it will train our actions. You ever heard the term that we're fleshing out our faith? You ever heard people say that? It's time to flesh out our faith. It comes from the book of John. John was poetic in the way he described Jesus' birth announcement. He said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That if you wanted to know what the Old Testament scriptures had to say, what God was saying in those Old Testament scriptures, just look to Jesus. He was a living, breathing, incarnate scripture. We're to, we're to flesh out the faith. That the scriptures are to be alive within us. And the scriptures are to be obeyed and moved upon. And as they do, we become less like the reader and more like the author. And that's the goal behind it. Let me give you the fourth and primary way, the the final way on how you can hold on to God's word and make it foundational to your life. And that is, I am going to make it the weapon, the weapon for the challenges that I'm going to face in my life daily. I'm going to make it a weapon. You know, God's word will help you overcome sin, right? It will help you defeat temptation. Psalm 119 says it like this. I have hidden your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Just to hide it in your heart. Let it just rest there. Jesus set the example for us on how it becomes a weapon. After he gave the example of being baptized, he went out into the wilderness for 40 days. He didn't eat food. He was fasting. He was alone. Satan came to him in that moment of physical weakness and tried to lead Jesus astray and to give up his perfection. And every time Satan whispered a temptation into Christ's ear, Christ overcame that temptation with the words of God, with Scripture. And in Jesus' weakness, his strength was Scripture. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6 quickly. And God's word is described as a weapon that we can become ferocious fighters with. And when we apply God's word and we work it out, we become fierce and the enemy doesn't want to fight us or get close to us. Wouldn't you like it where Satan is afraid of you and doesn't want to get close to you, is afraid about tempting you because he knows that you know how to wield the sword of truth? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, here's what it says. Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, not if the day of evil comes, There's going to be a day, if there hasn't already been, there's going to be more days where Satan attacks your life and tries to cut down, knock down the building, but he can't get the foundation, so that's why it's important that it's strong. Then he talks about some things that we have for defense. We have 
a belt of truth. We have a breastplate of righteousness. We have, we have a helmet of salvation, verse 17. And then we have, we have one offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. When you're a kid, you ever do sword drills in church? The sword. This is the idea. This is a weapon to be used. And if you look at verse 16 in that same chapter, it talks about Satan's weapon. You know what Satan's weapon is? Fiery darts. Fiery darts. You, you don't have to really put too much imagination in it to understand that a sword is a hand-to-hand weapon. You have to be close to your enemy. A bow and arrow is a distance weapon. And Paul is saying, Satan is scared. And fighting from afar, from the man and woman that knows how to wield the sword of truth, the sword of salvation, he's, he's frightened by them. He's scared, of them, and he has to keep his distance from those people. You know, in the Scripture, it becomes an in, uh, indispensable weapon, the Scriptures tell us. Jesus used it to defeat Satan and there, there are more than just words on a page in this book. This is a sword to overcome Satan's attacks. To overcome the attacks. And friends, the attacks are going to come. Satan's going to shoot some fiery darts of doubt your direction. He's going to lead you to believe one day that your future is not going to be any good because it's been defined by who you were, by your past. You know what? You need to start pulling out the sword and you need to start fighting back and you need to say, nope, that's not what Scripture says. It says anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person, Satan. And the old life is gone and the new has begun. You know, Satan's going to come back at you and he's going to say, yeah, well, you know what? Your sin isn't harming anybody. Just go ahead and keep to your sin. You need to pull out the sword. You need to pull out the weapon. You need to fight back and you say, nope, Satan, you can't fool God. So don't make a fool of yourself. You will harvest what you plant, and if you follow your selfish desires, you'll harvest destruction, but if you follow the Spirit, you'll harvest eternal life, and Satan's going to say, you know what? No one's ever loved you. No one's ever going to love you. You have just wore out God. You've gone too far. You need to pull out the weapon, and you say, nope, I'm going to fight you, Satan, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. That's the word for sin. Even when we were dead in sin, it's by grace. You have been saved. See, God does love me. Satan's gonna try to tell you, you know what? What you've done, you can't be forgiven of it. Your own mom won't forgive you. Why would God forgive you? And you need to pull out the weapon and you need to say, nope, Satan, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, there's going to be a time in your life when Satan's going to say to you, you can't figure it out. And with this weapon in your hand, you can swing the sword and say, what do you mean I can't figure it out? God's word says that he's a lamp unto my feet and he's a light unto my path. He'll give me the direction. And Satan will say, well, you're just going to get too tired. You're going to say, what are you talking about, Satan? This word, this sword tells me that Christ is going to bring strength to the weary. And I'll find rest in him. And Satan will say, yeah, but it's impossible. And you'll say, but my God said in his word, nothing is impossible. And he'll say, yeah, but nobody loves you. And you'll say, wait a minute. For God so loved the world. And he'll say, but you're not smart enough. And you'll say, you know what? Satan, Scripture tells me that if I pray for wisdom, God is going to be faithful and He's going to give me some wisdom. You say, but you're too weak. You'll say, but Scripture tells me 
God's grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in my weakness. Bring on the weakness. And Satan's going to say, you can't do it. And you can say, but Scripture says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. And he'll say, but you're going to be alone. And you can say, but Scripture says, God will never leave me and God will never forsake me. Hold on to God's Word. Let it get beyond the mind and move to the heart. Let this become the foundation for your life because then you'll know the truth. And then that truth, well, that will save you.